0: Hey everyone, uh, this week is a really cool episode, got Scott Radinsky on the pod from uh, Scared Straight, 10 Foot Pole, and Pulley, and uh, yeah, cool interview, we we go into his music career, I also, uh, address his career in professional baseball, so it's kind of cool interweaving the two, and uh, yeah, Scott was really gracious with his time, and I appreciate him coming on the pod, um, and I hope you enjoy, um, to support this podcast, please like, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you could please take the time to do that. Um, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you just go and you give it five stars and maybe leave like a, a sentence-long review. That stuff goes a long way, um, and it is much appreciated. So once again, if you could just take out the extra time to just go and like the podcast wherever you listen, that would be awesome. Um also, please subscribe. Please share with your friends. Uh, this is a grassroots effort. I'm doing it for the love. And uh, just try to get the word out if you like it. That's the most important thing. If you want to go the extra mile, um, you can support the podcast on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash 185 miles south. Um, and you can subscribe with like a monthly donation there, $1 a month, $3 a month five dollars or more and uh that is much appreciated as well you can also donate uh via paypal that's paypal.me slash 185 miles south let's uh get going with scott um hope you enjoy and thanks for listening guys
1: 185 miles south a hardcore punk rock podcast
2: today the <laughs> uh, That's fine
0: uh, today on the pod we have Scott Rodinsky from scared straight and 10foot uh, pole and Polly. and uh, Scott, how did you meet the Scared Straight guys, and did you get into punk at the same time?
2: Um, when we were uh, uh, in in school together, uh, junior high, high school together, kind of grew up in the same uh, neighborhood, really, and um, I don't know, I think it was somewhere around 8th, ninth grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, started playing some instruments, and by ninth grade, um, I can't remember what vacation it was either, like Christmas break or Easter break or something. But it was Easter. We uh, so we started jamming in the garage and uh, trying to play some songs and, and uh, you know rather than just play by ourselves in our rooms, yeah, we just started jamming together.
0: And did you start playing drums or did you start off singing?
2: I, I, I was originally I played drums. I played drums for probably about two, three years before I before I started singing. Okay. Well, at least that's what it felt like.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. the first time a scared state, straight eh, scared straight put something out is '84. But when does the band actually start?
2: Um, oh god, the band probably started somewhere in late '81, early '82. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we probably played. I don't know solid year probably before we ever did anything live and then we, we did this battle of the bands at a, like a roller skating rink locally here in town and actually killed it and won awesome. and then i played our played our junior high school we were in ninth grade uh-huh. uh, like at lunchtime you know on the on quad and then uh just started playing some gigs like you know down in hollywood at the cafe the grand started playing some shows down there and that's when uh actually when Tony of the repute was putting together that, the Nardcore record and I was still playing drums at the time, when we, uh, when we got asked to do that. And I actually played drums on that record. And then uh, that's when I made the transition transition to sing. Like we recorded the, the music and then like a week later I had to, we had to go sing and our singer was out of town. So they were telling us we had to get it done and <laughs> I volunteered and that was, that's kind of how it happened. That's a wrap for him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's hilarious. Did you record it mystic for that?
0: we did yeah what was that experience like
2: um you know what it was it was it's been a long time but uh from what i can remember we just drove down there we set our set our equipment up they put some mics on it and that was pretty much it um it was really quick it was weird we had never we had recorded like some demos and in our living rooms and stuff before uh you know all live but this was kind of like we were recording without the vocals so it was weird we were playing music and and then uh, and we didn't do any overdubs or anything it was all live like you know guitar, bass, drums all at the same time but um, yeah it was cool it was our first time in like a real studio um, so it was kind of kind of a cool experience and we were we were young and uh, so for us it was it was awesome it was like yeah this, this is cool you know we're going and recording we got to hear it back on these huge speakers and thought wow man this is yeah, we, we rip. Did.
0: We rip. Yeah, we rip, exactly. Yeah. So do you record the song for Party Animal in that same session, or is that do you go back to Mystic to just do one song?
2: Oh yeah, we did we went back to Mystic and did one song on multiple compilations after that. Okay. Um we, we did the we did the Nardcore songs and then uh and somewhere between the record coming out and recording it. They had called and said hey man we really dig these tracks uh, you guys want to come down and do a seven inch they kind of started doing a lot of a lot of stuff at that time with uh, especially the nardcore area you know uh, mm-hmm. I think there's rat pack um, RKl a lot of you know, reputed recorded what happens next dr no so they were starting to like do a lot of stuff and and uh, we were just one of those early nardcore bands that they offered to do a seven inch and of course we jumped right on that we went down there and blasted out those songs and then after that you know we kind of had a relationship with them and it was like hey we're doing a cover compilation or hey we're doing a you know whatever punk rock uh you know animal whatever the hell those compilations yeah, were yeah. and we just went down we'd go do one song you know we'd just go down there and spend a couple hours knock the song out record it do the vocals and be done and leave and and then you'd wait like six months to hear what it sounded like all right. <laughs> Yeah.
0: And your introduction to meeting all the North Koreas was meeting Tony in LA.
2: Um, yeah, pretty much. Um, there was a pretty cool connection for a while here in see Um, we were doing some parties and, and like Stalag was coming out and playing and, and, uh, Dr. No would come out and play in repute. But my first real, like when I first met Tony, the first time was at the cafe, they were playing a gig down there. I couldn't even tell you when it was. and. um I don't think we really knew each other or, or talked about anything at that time. Um, you know, as far as like recording or anything or even being in the band, I was just like kind of in awe watching like a band that I really liked because the uh, Land in a Toilet record was out already. So I was kind of into that. And then uh, and then it was kind of more like the parties that we were having out in here in Simi when uh it started kind of meshing together and we'd start going out to a lot of parties out there, you know, a lot of bands. And I couldn't tell him. And sometimes I saw Starlock play somewhere out there at a party or, sure. or some, some, you know, some other band and, and just started meeting a lot of people. And just, I think, you know, being around our faces, we'd see each other and it just kind of became a, well, we're part of this scene now, you know?
0: Yeah. So cool. And yeah, it was really cool. I can't even tell you how cool it was. Yeah. And how did it feel you when, know? when the, the actual seven inch came out? Like,
2: was that really rewarding? Like guess your, oh, whole, it's your whole are record. You kidding me? we, we they gave us a box of 50 that was like the that was like the uh i won't say reward but that was like what you know the compensation we received and you know here here we are standing at school i think i was in 10th grade and uh we're like at school and we got this box of seven inches like yeah our band record it was cool shit And, and at that time you know there wasn't a lot of i mean it's it was completely unlike anything you'd see nowadays. You didn't have access to music. There was no internet right. and no nobody had a record out. So regardless of what label it was or, or how it got put out, the fact that we actually had one, we started doing gigs and you could, you could tell like people knew who you were, you know, the compilation that we were on the Nardcore compilation yeah. was, was big and and it, and, it, and we were able to go play and people kind of knew the name and we put out a 7-inch and it kind of made you feel like yeah, like totally rewarding like we're a band with a record and and not that it was something crazy but we had music on vinyl and it was pretty fucking cool yeah, know?
0: and it's a good record
2: I mean, it's, yeah, it's I a legitimately mean, good I mean,
0: like old hardcore record
2: yeah, so. yeah, I mean for a bunch of kids who really didn't know what they were doing or singing about it it was a uh, it was it was a it was good for the times, man, and, and I'm not embarrassed by it by any means.
0: Yeah, and so that's 1985, and that when your seven inch comes out, and that would be the you know. Scott, one second, I'm just going to shut a window. Some guy blowing uh, leaves outside. One, one second.
2: I thought that came out in '84.
0: So the seven inch comes out in 1985 and I think
2: it was 84, but I'm not sure.
0: Discogs is wrong a lot. <laughs> That's what I'm pulling it off of. Um, okay. E- even though I have like four copies. So okay. there's, there's lots of variations. Yeah, either way. There's like the cardstock cover. There's like the photocopy cover. There's one on blue. There's, okay. That's a bunch of stuff, but uh, okay. Okay. So in 85, you go on tour with the yeah, and not only do you—is your band going on tour with them? But you actually play drums.
2: Yeah, insane. Um, <laughs> How much notice do you get I, I, that you're going to play drums? Well, um, we were getting ready to do this tour, and we were playing a gig somewhere out in Pomona. It was like this label called One Two XU, and they were they were doing or Toxic Shock Records. I don't know if but they used to have like little mail order record thing right I remember playing a gig out there where they were, and I had this little blue pickup truck and we were sitting in it me and John and he's like yeah this would be cool to go on tour and you know they were talking about something and if they took Carl's truck on tour they were going to put a shell on it so they could have AC and and all this shit and, and uh, you know so we were totally talking about going on tour together and and this was I don't know this was probably like springtime and we were talking about for the summer so uh somewhere between then and and the summertime uh, i can't remember exactly what happened but something went on with carl and the band and i can remember telling tony well i'll play drums and they came out to my house they set up we jammed and i think it was like okay by then they're like all right well cool he can pull it and so we did a gig in bakersfield we did a show in the Valley, this place called Sun Valley Sportsman's Hall that was doing a lot of shows back then. And and then we actually went out and did the tour. So I, I had I had some notice. I played a couple of gigs, which was, uh, you know, I mean, not to sound you know, nostalgic or whatever, but they were kind of like a, uh, I was kind of in awe at first because every song I knew by heart and yeah. I didn't need to rehearse anything. Yeah. The only thing they told me to the only thing they told me to do was slow down. We're not playing as fast as the record because (laughs) so, so that was like the only adjustment I had to make. Um, I mean, I knew everything and, um, and, and yeah, that was, that was insane to, to be able to play a set with, with our band and, and sing. And then like the whole time we'd be playing, all I knew is like, as I was looking at the songs, as we're going down the set list, the closer we'd get to the end, the more excited I'd get because I knew, like, wow, I still get to play another set and play drums with Ill Repute, <laughs> and so that was that was that was pretty killer.
0: That is so cool. That was cool. I, yeah. I I think it would be so wild though filling in drums in that era in that era of Ill Repute just because by the time what happens next comes out, Carl is playing like this really wild style of drumming that's really untraditional, and for you to come in and like replicate it is pretty
2: it's pretty wild. It it was totally a different style and you know that's like i said uh, it was super fast yeah and and so when we were jamming in my in my house i just remember uh jim kind of going hey slow down he's like it's, it's more adolescence feel Right. and and i remember there's no way that a repeat song is going to sound like you know kids in the black hole <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and 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 so you know it wasn't like slow by any means but it was more together so it didn't sound as wild and crazy, and and I didn't do all the, you know, all the crazy fills. It was, it was pretty tight actually, and and you know there was about four or five new songs that we were playing that that hadn't even been heard yet that were going on to a I think the record was called Positive Charged or something. The next record that came out,
1: mm-hmm.
2: like Stop and Think, and and there were some other songs that like there was like an intro song that we were playing that nobody ever even had had even heard yet, so. So I, I don't i don't think I was the first one to play those because i heard some examples of, of carl doing those but they hadn't recorded them or played them live yet so you know there was like a decent little chunk of the set that was you know new stuff so kind of had my own freedom to it was good it wasn't it wasn't too crazy it was it was like it was pretty well together like i said it wasn't it wasn't all over the place like uh like what you'd think of what happens next but or uh, or or even like some of the songs on like the the first seven inch but I mean, you know, I think when you saw it live, you, you distinctively knew it was, you know, you could, you could tell the or you, they were old Pete songs, very easy to follow along. Yeah, of course, because you know? they're catchy. Yeah,
0: yeah, they're, they're just one of those bands that can pull off beating that fast and still be catchy.
2: Yeah. So it was good at that time, man. I mean, those guys were, I think they were like kind of out of peak at that point too. You know, they had been, they were, they were playing a lot in L.A. So as far as playing wise, those guys were. They were on it, and, and I stepped in, and, and it was like, you know, definitely a challenge. But I'd say that was definitely a high point for for all of us at that time. You know, uh, as far as like those particular bands at that moment, mm-hmm. it was uh, the scene was just, in, and even in, in just in America in general, it was it was just kind of scratching the surface, and it was so much fun.
0: Yeah, and are you you're already getting scouted in high school for baseball though, right?
2: Um you know, I was just going to school and I was playing. I didn't really know a whole lot about what was going on there. I, I get a couple things in the mail from like college or something, which I didn't have any chance of participating in college. You know, I, I wasn't college bound. Um, and then, uh, you know, the professional thing kind of happened. I caught wind of like, well, it might be a chance, you know, you might be going to get a chance to get signed out of high school. And when I heard that, I just kind of thought, well, that's the route I'm going and hopefully it happens. And, and um, you know, I'd see I'd see scouts at the games. There was definitely, you know, on the days that I was pitching,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: could tell there was like 15, 20 more guys behind the stands with radar guns yeah. that weren't there on the days that I wasn't pitching. Um, so yeah, they're 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 always at high school games.
0: I just wonder how that mixes with like punk in that wild time. Like, are you? like cautious if you like go in the pit to like protect your arm or like make make sure you like don't get into fights and so forth, because you're, you're, you're considering that your arm could be your livelihood.
2: It wasn't even a thought. I mean, I, I was driving out three, four days a week to this ramp out in Ventura built by this guy named Rob somewhere in the, in the sticks, like in the, off the freeway. It was a uh, kind of more by the college. It was, it was a huge, huge half pipe. Um, this guy skated for, I think it was Barfoot, Barefoot, Barfoot, however you pronounce it. Uh, it was a company out of Santa Barbara, and it was like the total hangout. Guys were up there, aggression would play, you know, bring generators and play on the ramp. And um, it, I never even thought about uh, the, 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 there was no protection at all. Now uh, didn't, you know, going into a gig, it was like, you know, didn't think twice about anything, it was, I guess you feel pretty indestructible when you're that age. You know, you don't really think about shit like that. Yeah. But I know I, the older I got, mm-hmm. you know, like as I started playing, I mean, I'd be riding my skateboard around with my dog or something. And I always, people would ask me about skating. I said, I'm the best skater who doesn't fall, you know, cause I just <laughs> made a point of not, not falling. So but at that time, no, I didn't, wasn't it didn't even cross my line. Yeah.
0: I mean, skating pipe would definitely be way more dangerous, probably on the arm than going to a show. So, yeah
2: so let's let's go
0: to that tour um so in 85 you head out and do you remember the routing at all like do you remember what the first show was
2: first show was in tucson arizona we left it uh late afternoon tony wanted to drive all night we had two cars we had this station wagon pull the trailer and we had my my little mini truck and because um, we had the o repute guys our band and then we had uh, this guy who came out from Australia <laughs> who just knocked on my mom's door and said, Hey mate. He's like, I love your band. He heard us on the Narco record. He goes, I'm in the States. And uh, can I crash at your house? And uh, so next thing I know, this guy's hanging out for a few months and we said, well, you want to go on tour? And he said, yeah. So we took him. And um, so it was the, I guess there was, you know, eight or so of us that you know, couldn't fit in my truck. And so we had this, this guy's car pulling a trailer. It was my truck we took off late afternoon. Like I said, we were, we were on our way to Tucson and, and I remember Tony wanting to do like these night drives. So it wasn't so hot. Right. So we would drive all night and then we, you know, we would like find some place to like, which I think we woke up in a park and then, uh, he would call the promoter, uh, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. Hey, we're in your city. And we'd go to this guy's house, you know, the whole group of us. And, and then, uh, you know, play a gig. And then the next night do the same thing. And, So it was like, it was, uh, it was like Tucson, Albuquerque. Then we shot up to Denver and they had some friends up there. And then we started working our way across Lincoln, Nebraska. It was a ripping show. Um, we started heading, you know, that direction East. And, uh, you know, we, I just remember playing a really great gig in Pittsburgh one night, this place called the electric banana. And we stayed in the total hood. And when we woke up our drummer, uh, the guy who drew the Nardcore cover, the original one, he says, "Can I have the keys to the car?" And he walks out there and he comes back and goes, "Hey, uh, where's the car?" And everything was gone, man. They took, they stole, they stole the the trailer, the the car with all the equipment, everything. So, uh, you know, we were like, "Fuck, what do we do?" We we were in Pittsburgh. We're stuck in Pittsburgh. My truck was still there, but we didn't have any gear. We didn't have anything. And, you know, it's it's not like there was cell phones or anything to, like, call ahead. Or we didn't have right. resources to do shit. Right. And um, we go to the police station. And it was, like, totally like a movie. This cop with a cigar in his mouth sitting, you know, up higher, like this old precinct station somewhere in Pittsburgh. And it's like, well, what are you guys doing in this neighborhood anyway? <laughs> and uh, so we go back to the promoter's house. And we're just kind of sitting there all day, really not knowing what we're going to do. And I, I'm pretty sure Tony was handling a lot of the business stuff and making the phone call ahead to what was going on. And I think the next show was in Baltimore or something. And he had it arranged to where, you know, we decided we were going to go on with the tour. Uh, the, the, the cops called us later that day and said, Hey, we found your, we found your car and your trailer. So we all sprinted down to the police station.
1: Yeah.
2: And when we showed up, of course, the car was completely emptied out. Yeah. The trailer was emptied out, but they found the car and the trailer. So we had no gear or anything, and and uh, and I'm pretty sure we canceled a show. But then, you know, Tony said, "Hey, then tomorrow night or whatever's in Baltimore, these guys are going to load us all their gear, and we went for it." So we went to Baltimore, and and uh, I remember it just kind of like the morale being shot when everything was gone.
1: Yeah, I mean, everybody's
2: clothes, everything was just stolen. And uh, the show in Baltimore, I think there was a pretty good amount of people there, but just playing on like shit gear. It wasn't their guitars. It wasn't anything of ours. And I think the morale was just, just kind of dropped and, and uh, somewhere along the lines there, everybody, I I don't remember who or what, but it was like, we're going to, we're just going to like put our head between our, our tail between our legs and just turn around and go home. And that was it. And that was the decision that was made by the, from what I can remember the higher up and, you know, I was just kind of going along for the ride. So that's kind of what we decided to do. Yeah.
0: And at, at that point would, would that be about the halfway mark of the tour? You think you, you think you got two thirds done?
2: I think it was probably about the halfway point. Cause we had made it all the way to the East coast. And then, you know, we were coming down through after that, we were going to be coming down through like Raleigh and working our way through probably Florida back across Texas and home. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, you, we, we we played a lot of gigs. I mean, we were in Kansas, Chicago. We did a lot of stuff, getting our Detroit, working our way out that way. It was just, you know, unfortunately, we got to Pittsburgh and everything got stolen. Yeah, um, you referred to... it was a. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Please. No, I was say it was surprisingly. It was a really good tour up to that point. You know, for the times, it was really good, and things were well, and it was two bands that were getting along well and it was a good vibe you
0: know yeah pittsburgh fucked it all up that's terrible it fucked it all up man i know because that that is like everyone talks pretty positively about the tour until that happens so um, so you referred to uh brian wallsby and i wanted to clear up did did he play on everything like up to this point on all the recordings or did you play in some of the stuff as well
2: I played on the Nardcore stuff, okay. and then when I went to go sing the vocals, like I was telling you, like I, I recorded the drums on the, on the Nardcore record, right. and then about two weeks later, they called and said, hey, you guys need to get down here and do the vocals. Our, our singer was out of town, so I asked the guys the band, I said, I'll go do it, and they said, okay. And Brian was my friend from home, and he would hang out with us. So I said, come down the studio with me. So as I was recording the vocals, he was sitting in the lobby, and he was with the owner of the record label, Doug Moody. And, uh, he's like, you know, well, what's the cover going to be? And he starts, Brian starts drawing up these sketches and the guy goes, would you like to do the cover? And, and Brian <laughs> says, yeah, sure. So he drew up an hardcore record right there on the spot. And then, uh, I sang the vocals and then we both got the car and went home. And, and then, uh, I think around that time it was like, well, Hey Brian, do you want to, you want to play drums? Cause now I'm going to be singing. Right, And that's kind of how it happened.
0: And he played on the seven. Inch. So
2: then he recorded on the seven inch. He did a couple other compilations. Um, and then when we did our full length record, because on that tour, Brian was getting super tight with the Corrosion and Conformity guys. Mm-hmm. And when we got, we decided we were going to bail out in Baltimore. He said, Well, Corrosion's coming up to New York uh, in two days to play with the Bad Brains. So I'm just going to hang out here and hop in the band with them. And, I mean, it's going on 30 some odd years. He's never been home. Yeah. He hasn't been home yet. <laughs>
0: that is. Uh, I'm so envious of, like, that, that lackadaisical lifestyle of, of just being able to <laughs> yeah. do that, right? Yeah. No, I'm just going to go chill with these guys and see what happens. And, you know, 35 years later, he's still living, living out there with them. Yeah, that's so cool. So, Crazy. So you get back from a tour, and this is 85, and you don't do an LP until 1988. Until 1988. Um, are you just focused on baseball? Because you start playing in the minor leagues in 86.
2: Well, I'm I'm now at this point, like, you know, it's I'm getting ready to go into my senior year of high school. Yeah. So I'm still focusing on the band and, you know, trying to find a drummer.
1: Yeah. And
2: we found it, we we found a drummer to fill in for Brian. Um, you know, we started writing songs, we we're playing a lot of gigs. And I, I didn't know where I stood with O. Repute at that time, and Repute kinda of went on a little bit of a hiatus for a while there. Um, and they they, they didn't they weren't doing anything once we got back home. And um And so we we found a drummer, and we just kept hammering away. We started playing some really good gigs around L.A., found this really cool drummer. We were writing music. You know, things were kind of on the, we went on another tour. uh, I believe it was during the Christmas vacation of my senior year, which would have been 85, 86. We went on a tour, believe it or not. No effects opened. Uh, There was a band called Entropy and a band called The Grim and uh, it was like the four of us traveling out through texas and arizona and new mexico and we did that over the two-week christmas break and then uh yeah once baseball season started i guess in march i was kind of doing that but still playing in the band you know we're still doing killer shows up in san francisco's you know san jose area, santa cruz with the band blast and a bunch of other cool bands like the adolescents turned into this band called the ads mm-hmm. for a while playing all the adolescent songs we were still doing great shows, uniform choice. We were playing a lot of gigs in LA with them. Um, Just a lot of cool stuff. And and then, uh, you know, I was playing baseball at the same time. And and then in June, they have the the baseball draft and I got picked. And, 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 you know, I just left to go to baseball when, when, uh, when that happened. And it's like, Oh, I'm going to go for uh, go away for two months, guys. I'll see you when I come back. That's kind of what happened. That's pretty much what, has been happening for the last 30 some odd years.
0: Uh, that's uh, it's so crazy. So, in, in and yeah. is that the Gulf coast white Sox in Sarasota?
2: That's what it was. Yeah. I went out there, you know, somewhere around June and I think that season lasted till August. And then, you know, I came home and, you know, now at this point, the other guys in the band are, you know, going to college and, you know, they went on to do other stuff. And, and so, you know, it kind of like, you know, I was, I was doing baseball and they're going to school. So, we just kind of time things up and you know the the gigs probably went from like 50 a year down to like 10 and um it was what it was but uh it seems like a nice it, balance it, it, though
0: like what's that it seems like a nice balance like you guys might actually enjoy it more instead of burning yourselves out right like here's punk season and oh, here's college and baseball season
2: we definitely figured it out i mean you know i I can only think of maybe one or two bands that continue to do it full time that survived um i mean to to think that like i started playing music when i was in seventh eighth grade whatever year that was and 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 now here i am you know 50 something year old man and i'm still doing it it's like there's a reason why and it's because it never was a full-time commitment and it, it the balance is what what's what's made it like realistically possible to continue mm-hmm. and and for us to still enjoy it and 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 music's really really hard i mean i don't i don't know how what the odds are the percentages are to get into professional baseball but you know to to make it as a musician it's got to be somewhere around the same you know and 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 we, we we definitely were 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 understanding of that and you know everybody kind of had their priorities what they had to do and we never put the stress on and the band kind of it, it probably sounds uh hypocritical but like or whatever but The band came first, but it really didn't. If that makes sense, you know, there was other priorities that like kind of took precedence, but the band was still very important. Yeah, of course. But we understood that it was important when we could make it happen, and we always found found time to make it happen. So I think that's why it continued to survive.
0: Yeah. How did you enjoy living in Sarasota? It's a huge change, right?
2: Oh, it was Florida's full like hillbilly, you know, like redneck, yeah, kind of. Yeah, it was totally different. I, I mean, I didn't really live there. I, was, I mean, I guess I did for two months, but, um, you know, I, I worked there. I was yeah, doing my yeah. thing for most of the day, and I'd go home. You know, after being in the sun all day, you're pretty beat. Mm-hmm. Laying around, watching TV, and go to sleep. Wake up, do it again the next day. It was That was a pretty pretty big adjustment. I, you know, it was kind of like still going to school in a sense, where I, I had this obligation I had to go do, but instead they were paying us a little bit of money.
0: Right. So you do that 86, 87, and then in 87, you go to the Peninsula White Sox, Hampton, Virginia. Uh, uh-huh. And then the following year is the Scared Straight LP,
2: 88. Yeah. Well, the thing is, is it was recorded like two years before that.
0: So it was recorded in like 86, you think?
2: I'll bet you it was recorded probably in 87. Okay. So, but and a, a full just year. I remember it was it like, out. it was like, it was a solid year before it came out. Mystic Moved. Right. They they packed up all the stuff in Hollywood somewhere around eighty six, and they moved down to San Diego and they had all these storage warehouses and so things were just kind of sitting in storage for a long time and uh-huh. and then I think they finally found a a, a studio or something down there and then they probably start opening up all the uh, all the trunks and all the archives and like hey let's put this out let's put that out <laughs> that so they so started wild. putting stuff out that, yeah so you're a very you move they're probably still sitting on stuff that had never got put out. Because I know we recorded at least four or five songs mm-hmm. for some compilations that I've never heard. I've never heard since the day we did them, huh. and they're somewhere.
0: I think that there Maybe was. A, put them out one day. <laughs> I think that there was a fire somewhere. Like
2: no, I don't know.
0: Yeah. Anyway, but uh, yeah. Or Doug's just sitting on them all. I'm trying to get him. He's, yeah,
2: he's, he's, the, it, uh, he's got it all somewhere in storage, man. Yeah, he's the white whale. It, that shit didn't. That shit didn't burn down. Yeah, <laughs> but whatever. How how do you feel about
0: the LP compared to the seven inch?
2: Um, you know, it was. I thought the songs were better.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, the times were a little different. Um, we recorded it a little different. Uh, we had a different drummer. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, how did you record but- different? Did you actually you recorded all the instruments separately this time?
2: Well, I think we recorded the instruments live. We just, we had more time. It was like a different studio. It wasn't Mystic. It was a different studio somewhere down in San Diego. Okay. And mm-hmm. um, so it was a little different. Um, the, the, the one thing that was kind of a bummer about that is, is like I said, the record sat for it was at least a year and a half and we didn't know nothing about it. And then all of a sudden a buddy of mine comes to my house with a cassette tape and goes, hey, look at this. I went no way. We didn't know what the record cover was going to be like. We didn't know anything, and you know they just, like I said, they just discovered the tapes and oh hey we got to put this out. They slapped together a cover for us and they put all the shit out and that was that. And they never even told us. <laughs> so I, I found out by a friend who went to a local record store and came to my house with cassette tapes going hey your guys records out I'm like what? And of course we went down and tried to buy all of them and yeah and yeah that was that. Was he able to get? Just crazy. Like, a, little, a little different, you know, in the sense that, <laughs> it, it, like, we knew the seven inch was coming out. We were totally right. a part of it, and we were proud. And, and then all of a sudden, this, it was like, what? Yeah. We were, we didn't really, we weren't really a part of it. And it just kind of happened.
0: Was Doug easy to get on the phone? Could you just call him up and be like, what, what happened?
2: Um, Doug would always be easy to get a hold of on the phone if he'd answer. Yeah. You no, know? and he'd always give you the time to talk.
1: Yeah.
2: I actually had a pretty good relationship with him. I was one of two people that helped them move the entire studio down to San Diego. And I think he was always, you know, grateful for that. And 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 I can remember Doug uh, coming up to my house, to my mom's house, um, eating dinner with him and this guy, Phil, who was his right-hand man. And, um, you know, so I, I definitely had a good relationship with him, but they were still, uh, I don't want to use the word shady, but they were just like, unreliable when it came to like the communication side of things. He was down there taking care of a sick mom that was like in her nineties or something. So, I mean, I guess I get it. And, and once he left the Hollywood rat race and the whole lifestyle he had with, you know, tons of years leading up to the whole punk rock thing, um, you know, I guess he just kind of like took off and got away from it all. And, and, um, you know, here I was, this, this you know, snot those kid still, you know, in my teens and, you know, I mean, it was cool that he'd even give us a time of day, but, um, there wasn't like consistent communication now.
0: Yeah. Did you ever see that he put out, he put out a Fernando Valenzuela picture seven inch in like 81? I,
2: I'm sure he did. <laughs> I, I, insane, I actually man. saw, I saw him do a reissue of a CD called it came from slimy Valley. Uh-huh. And on the backside, it's like, uh, it's a, uh, it's a scared straight record featuring. Featuring Scott Radinsky, it's like, <laughs> but whatever, man. You can't. I mean, those are those are things that are like kind of out of control, out of our control. You know? Yeah. Like so, I said, he just starts slapping stuff together and putting it out, just yeah. to put it out.
0: Yeah. Do you do you see like uh, an increase in popularity or anything when you put out an LP though?
2: Uh,
0: well. Because now you have more songs out for people to sink their teeth into.
2: Well, yeah, but then at that time, at the same time, it's like kind of like the whole punk thing was kind of going in a different direction, and it seemed like everybody was getting like speed metal and all this other kind of like thrash metal kind of stuff. And, yeah, it's a you know, rough like year that, for punk. The, the late eighties, it was definitely it was not you know it wasn't what it was what I was accustomed to. Like there was a really healthy, and of course it was super violent, but there was like this really thriving scene in LA, Oxnard, Santa Barbara, you know, just, it was kind of the valley. I mean, I saw minor threat in Chatsworth. Yeah. You know, it was just, things were, it was good. And then the late eighties, you know, there was, there was really only one place Remember the country club in the valley was kind of going on. And it was, wasn't really till some point in the eighties when I think bad religion started playing. And, and then there was a little bit of a, a, a swing in a different direction, but for a couple of years, or man, a lot of the bands just stopped playing. You know, whether whether there was no place to play, or it just—I don't want to say the scene died because it didn't die. Yeah. But so when you ask about the increased popularity, no, not that noticeable because things were kind of going in a different direction. We still had the same consistent base we had from before. Yeah, but it, it definitely didn't grow. Yeah,
0: yeah. Battle didn't get back together, and they do suffer in '88. So '86 to '88 was probably pretty rough. I would assume.
2: Yeah. So like, I remember like probably around 89 and, you know, the early nineties, it was still kind of like feeling its way through. And then at some point, like 92, 93, it just went, it went back to being that same, like healthy, thriving, but like a different style, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Broke. Um, Yeah. So you do 88 in Sarasota again, then you go to South bend for the South bend white Sox in 89 and then mm-hmm. you break through and go pro in uh, 1990 with the Chicago White Sox. Th- mm-hmm. it, se- it seems like such a long time to be in the, the minors and then break through. that had to that had to be the craziest feeling in the world.
2: Well, I mean, when you come out of high school, I think the average uh, the average to get to the big leagues you know is four years is pretty good. okay. Uh, when you' when you're a high school player, That's right. We cut. We're cutting out college.
0: Yeah, we're cutting out college. So basically, your minor league time is your college time.
2: Exactly. Gotcha. Now imagine a guy who comes out of out of college at 22, and it still takes him a few years to get there. Now he's 26. I think the average age you get to big leagues is like 26.
1: Okay.
2: Um, And and uh, no, it it was uh, yeah. It seemed like a long time, but but you know, at the same time, really, it just it, it wasn't. It kind of flew by. My natural my age. I was always younger. I mean, when I first, when I first went to, you know, in 86, more than three quarters of the team were all guys from Arizona State, all these big time college guys. And uh-huh. I was way out of my league. I was like the little pup. Right. And, uh, you know, it just kind of took a while for, and then once it happened, I just, I shot past all of them, you know, and, and it happened really quick. And, and timing's everything. It was the right place at the right time. And, you know, I had the right manager who, who, didn't care and, and was like, I don't care how old this kid is. I don't care where he played last year. Uh, what I'm seeing, uh, he deserves to be on this team. And, and he took a chance on me, and and uh, you know, for for both of us, it paid off.
0: Did you always feel like you were on that trajectory? Like you knew you were going to make it to the big leagues? Mm-hmm.
2: I I didn't um I didn't know for a while. I got injured and went through the whole you know had surgery, went through the rehab process, and then. You know, the Caltrans job looked, started looking pretty uh, pretty uh, entertaining. I didn't really know what was going on. And then uh, as I was going through this rehab process and I started, like, actually training for the first time, somebody actually I used to go to this therapy place, this physical therapist, and, and uh, it was a woman. And, and she was actually putting me through this training. And I was like, I started noticing significant differences in, like, strength. And what I could do. Mm-hmm. And that's when I really started to believe in myself. So when I when I got back on the field after my, my injury, which was 87, I, I had to rehab through 88. When 89 came around, I was the most confident person. You know, I mean, I never went to the gym or did stuff like that. But, but you know, you, you could see how those guys probably feel confident about themselves. And they're staring in the mirror, and they see their biceps and their chest. I, I didn't bulk up. But I just got physically strong because of you know, and being a pitcher, you have to kind of keep keep your elasticity, and you know, you mm-hmm. think you don't want to get muscle bound. Right. But uh, this lady ran me through some shit that, like, it just—I got so much confidence after going through all of it, and and uh, I just made the '89 season so easy, and I just absolutely dominated, and felt like I did in high school again, both physically and mentally, mm-hmm. and then. That year, yeah, I absolutely 100% thought I can totally fit in here and I belong here,
1: yeah.
2: and that's the biggest challenge you have to overcome in, in that profession is, is uh, there's a lot of guys that have the talent. There's not a lot of guys that believe they belong there. And Once you believe you belong there, well, then the natural ability just takes over and, and I don't want to say it becomes easy, but it certainly becomes easier. And, and that's what happened to me was I, I was physically strong. I prepared myself the best I could and then mentally I started having the success to where I was like, huh, I belong here. And I'm way better than these guys. You start looking at you know your left and your right and you start sizing yourself up and you start thinking, there's nobody on this team better than me. And that's kind of how you have to feel about it. Yeah. Obviously not out, outwardly cocky but just inside that confidence. And, and uh, so that year in 89, that's when that feeling started and then I knew like yeah I definitely the trajectory was gonna I was on that path
0: right and then in in 1990 you start Chicago White Sox exactly and you do 90 92 93 and then so it's been a long time since uh Scared Straight does recordings do you do you slow down a little bit in that time just because you're in the majors
2: well that's kind of when we made that transition of you know well I'm going to baseball now for eight months but during that four-month period, no, I mean, we still did just whatever we shows. could do. We, yeah, we wrote, yeah. we did shows, you know, whatever was going on at the time. And like I said, there was a couple of years where things were a little, I don't want to say dead, but they were just slower just because, you know, it's like, like I said, the the 50 gigs a year would turn into 10, you know, big. oh, we play with RKO at the Oxnard Community Center, and then we'd go do a show up in San Francisco with Sam I Am and and then uh you know maybe it wouldn't be a gig for another two months and we'd play somewhere down at long beach and you maybe we ended up playing a handful of shows that particular year and then i would have to go to baseball come back home the next year play a gig at the country club with you know with bi or something and it was you know, they were just more sparingly happening you know and and, and until uh until somewhere around the early nineties, but yeah, the reason why I ask I is know. just because
0: uh, Swill and Rev they come out like in back to back years. Um, mm-hmm. Is that did, did Swill get recorded like earlier and take a while to come out, or were you just so no, prolific but, for those two
2: years? Well, just what 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 years are we talking about now?
0: Okay, so it looks like Swill comes out in nineteen ninety three, and it's okay, and it's I think that on and, maybe on the cassette you're called Scared Straight, and on the CD you're called Ten Foot Pole. That's it you was. The
2: it was Scared Straight. It was recorded as Scared Straight. Okay. Now, remember what you said about what year it was, and, and like we were talking, like you know, from '88, from '86 to '88, '89, it's kind of dead. '90, it's kind of slow. Well, we probably started writing those songs somewhere around '92. We recorded them, and you know, we recorded them, and then the the, the the we recorded them as Scared Straight. Uh the we actually printed the copies of Scared Straight. Now all of a sudden the scene's starting to kind of change. Right. You know? Nice. And, and that's why there, there's those back to back years. And then things after that just kind of came in succession, you know, for years and years and years to come, but it's because of the era and because of the, the demand, not demands, but just, you know, it was like, it was the time, the times. And, uh, so we recorded the scared straight record and we were supposed to put it out on fat records. Okay. And, uh, you know, we were talking with Mike, and he's like, "You know, I really think maybe a name change. You know, uh, it's a different style of music. Maybe it's a fresh start. Um, you know, you wouldn't have to correlate yourself with the past." And so we started thinking about all this stuff. And at that point, we had already printed like you know a thousand copies or two thousand copies. So we basically took a sticker, uh, and we once we decided to change the name to Temple Pole, we took a sticker and and opened up every single package of <laughs> you know everything that was packaged under Scared Straight, and we put the sticker right over the CD rather than reprint them and and just called a 10 foot pole and blacked out anything that said scared straight with a Sharpie. Uh, And that's what we did on those first, you know, however many thousands of copies there were. And then, and then after that, we started printing the, uh, the 10 foot pole versions. And then, uh, you know, this, whatever that was, 93, we sent a copy to Epitaph. Brett said, Hey, this is cool. I want to put out a record. Well, we were already writing songs and, and, uh, like, okay, cool. We started, we put a record out on it, but the Epitaph and then, you know, 90, 90, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000, all those years were just, you know, we just put out records because, you know, under one band or another, whatever the name was, um, because of the opportunity. Yeah. And it was, it was, like I said, the times were, were different, but for that low period, there wasn't anything going on because there was no record label. There was no, there was no, well, there was a scene, but there wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, just something clicked because I think swill is a good record, but rev Uh rev is an amazing record. I think it's one of the greatest albums ever. Um, cool, man. And so it's, it's wild that just something clicked. I don't know who the main songwriter was for rev, but, I mean the the music really changed, but in not like a not in like a a weird regressive way. Like it got unique. That record sounds like nothing else. I mean, nothing else really ever sounded like it again after. You know, I mean it, it's hard because the the ten foot pole records after obviously you don't sing on them, so it's hard to compare them because <laughs> the the, guitar, <clears throat> the guitarist's voice is. He kinda of sounds like weird Al. It like pulls me out of it. Yeah. You
2: know? I, I haven't heard it but I but I've heard that those comments. But you know, the school record was written definitely different than anything we had done previously, Scared Straightwise. Right. It was written with a more conscious effort of a different type of style. Like I said, the bad religion record came out. Um, you know, there was different thoughts in and in, in, you know, I started we started listening. we heard Green Day. So there was you know, there was it was like, wow, this is kinda of like not poppy but a little more melodic, And then it just kind of kept transitioning into the rev record. Um, we were all the same writers, um, but the style changed. I mean, I'd like to think that like we went from not so much screaming, but kind of like that youth anger to like, well, we actually really did start singing and we were making more conscious, a conscious effort of writing, I guess, happier notes rather than, you know, the, the, the typical like hardcore, you know, just anger, sour notes. And and so that's kind of the direction it went, and it just kind of continued on that path, as as did you know ninety percent of the bands that were writing music at that time. So
0: yeah, but the um, rev, the, rec- the rev record just sounds more urgent and serious and just better than most of the stuff like of of ninety four, I think. So maybe Swill is you guys is kind of like a demo era for that next the next It,
2: it totally was a demo era. Yeah.
0: Totally. You know, and then rev, just something hits. And I mean, it's just one of the things where everything lines up perfectly. And
2: Well, we had an idea of where way. we were headed. Right. You know, like once, once we got past swill, it was like, okay, this is direction we're going. Yeah. And you know, like if you listen to swill, there's some weird songs on there that probably didn't fit, you know, they weren't all, but then when we decided to go rev, we had a direction. So not that all the songs sounded the same, but there was definitely a, a more clear direction in where we were headed when we were songwriting. So it it just, it, it was definitely easier to go. Once we had a style we wanted to try to accomplish, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And then, and then um, you have a major life event here. Um, and so you're, you do four years of the majors and then you put out swill and then you put out, you know, the best record of your career up to this point, in 94, and then you get sick. And,
2: and how well, I, I was actually, the reason the rev record, you know, got got so dialed in. Was I got sick in February, and we hadn't recorded the record yet. Oh, um, we record the record during that summer. I'm I, I was recording the record. You know, while going through chemo treatments, and we were writing a lot of that music leading up to the you know going into the studio. Um, I was at home, so you know the fact that we were all together was was a big was a big part of of um you know writing a lot of those songs but i i recorded the whole record you know while going through all those treatments the record you know didn't get put out till after the fact
0: crazy and yeah yeah and then you don't play baseball in in
2: 94 94 yeah i don't play baseball
0: and how does how does that feel for you like this is like the first year you haven't played baseball probably in your your life since going back to like five years old right
2: Yeah, since Little League. Um, Yeah, it was weird, but you know, like I said, I I, I had something totally different on my mind. I was, uh, I mean, I had to go to the doctor once every two weeks, get, you know, these treatments. And then once that was over for six months, then I had to go through these radiation treatments. So baseball was kind of like the farthest thing on my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And thank God for the musical outlet, because, you know, it it, it did allow me to kind of keep myself a little occupied with something. you know, I was going to my high school and like hanging around there, helping out the baseball team and trying to do as much as I could actively. And and thank God for, you know, no internet at that time for me, because I didn't have any ability to research what I had or no, I just, the doctor said, this is what you got to do. And I just kind of put my head down and thought, okay, well, I got to get through this. It's going to take me about eight months and I'm not going to look up until I get there. And that's kind of what I did. And and, um, once you're going through that, yeah, the rest of the shit going on around the world is kind of secondary.
0: Yeah, you, but you powered through it,
2: and uh, totally powered through it. How else can you get through it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. But you
0: bounce back, and in '95 you go back into the minors, uh, South Bend, Indiana, the South Bend Silverhawks.
2: I, I, I played. I played in Chicago all year. Okay. Um, I, I I I got put on the DL about halfway through the year for about two weeks. Oh. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, At
0: least both I, I just wasn't
2: performing, you know, and, and understandably i missed a whole year, but not to mention miss, missing a whole year, my body physically went through some hell. Okay. And I probably I probably shouldn't even have started the year in ninety five, but mm-hmm. you know, their loyalty and, and my determination was, you know, I'm gonna make it and I and I and I showed spurts here and there, but it just wasn't consistent. So I, I went down to South Bend well really what, what I did was they, they gave me a two week break is what it was. And okay. I pitched in a couple, couple of games in South Bend, just they're called like rehab assignments. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I, they just gave me a break, to get my body a rest. And and uh, yeah, something happened in that two weeks, you know, that two, three week period where, you know, I got a little recharge and I was getting further, th- further away removed from, you know, going through all those treatments that, that beat me up. And, and uh, you know, it just takes time.
1: Yeah. And,
2: uh, and, and, and when I came back that second, that second half, that, you know, that last quarter of 95, I was, I was pretty good, man. It was, you know, my body was physically, I was showing life again of, you know, I could, I could come into a game and not be huffing and puffing by the time I got there. Right. So, uh, I, I could physically start telling, I, you know, I could see, I could see that I was able to do more. So, um, it was, it was kind of more of a mutual, like they'd sat me down one day in New York and it was like, Hey man you know, we don't want to see you out there struggling. And, you know, what do you think about this? And they propose the idea. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, if that's what you want me to do, I mean, I, 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 I guess I had to come with reality and, and accept that, like my, my body probably needed that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's
0: amazing. And then you get your, yeah. you get some confidence back.
2: Oh, totally. And, and from that point on, I mean, it was pretty good. Yeah. You know, I just needed, I needed to get through the, the physical, uh, repairing of, uh, what my body, you know, the shit that I had to go through. Right.
0: And at this time though, you, you have another kind of major life event is that you, you separate from a uh, 10 foot pole.
2: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm asked to leave, um, you know, due to the success of the rev record and the, the new label. And, and now all of a sudden everybody who, you know, was going to college was out mm-hmm. and they had jobs and they were in the working world and kind of realized like, this sucks. And and, and there, here was this opportunity, and I think you know they they lost that mindset of why the band had stayed successful for years up to that point, um, and why we had all remained friends and, and been the same band members, which a lot of bands interchange.
0: Yeah, you're on a ten year run. It, you're a ten year run. It,
2: well, yeah, and, and it was never was never this is what we do. Well, you know, after the Rev record came out, and I had to take off and, and leave for baseball, I think the opportunities that were coming in and you know, the constant, well, shit, we can't play. We don't have a singer. And, um, you know, I just think that they kind of thought, well, we have a chance to do this. We want to be the next Pennywise. And, um, you know, that was the decision they made. They asked me to leave. And I just thought to myself, well, why don't you guys start a new band for eight months? And why don't we keep this thing that we have, you know, for four months a year that, that, uh, that, that we've made successful over the years and, 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 Found a way to be successful, and they just uh, they just decided that was the route they were going to go. And I think that that was already a predetermined decision when they called me. And, and um, you know, what was I going to do? Yeah, you know, start a new band.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't take you long to put together a Pulley.
2: It took me twenty four hours. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and twenty four you- hours, and, and 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 you know what? I got to be honest at that point, you know everybody has their issues and, and it, you know, it's tough getting along. Everybody, especially once you start to see everything was cool until we did the rev record and got an epitaph. And then uh, I don't want I won't name names or anything, but just people's egos start to swell a little bit. And, and uh, like I said, kind of lost sight of what the band really was, the whole, the way, it, the way it started out. And, um, and um, I think that kind of took over mentality, which ultimately ended up, Ruining the name, um, but it was uh, it was an opportunity to pick up the phone and like call these people that i had never been in a band with that yeah. were friends of mine, and it's like, hey, you want to start a band? You want to have some fun? Um, we're gonna we're gonna record a record, and we're gonna get to be on Epitaph, because that was my whole thing in the beginning. Was I right away called Epitaph? Said, how how am I getting kicked out of my own band? And <laughs> and, uh, and Brett just said, hey, you know what? these guys want to do this thing, you know, just go ahead and put a band together and show me the songs. And, you know, we'll, 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 we'll I'm sure we'll do something. So I thought, okay, well, cool. I'm, I'm just determined. And, and like I said, it was a fresh, it was fresh for me to like, be able to like, reach out to these friends that played and, and, and said, Hey, you want to start a band and have fun. And, and within six months, we, you know, we started a band, recorded the songs, wrote the songs, and put out a record, and it was awesome, and it's been awesome for the last twenty-five years. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, it's a great debut album, Steam Driven yeah. Engine, nineteen ninety-six, Epitaph. Yeah. And Brad yeah. must have been pretty sympathetic, also, because that's right around the time that he's he's leaving Bad Religion and stuff.
2: Well, he said the same thing to me. He goes, "Well, dude, I got kicked out of my own band. <laughs> You're right. You know, I got a record label, and my band wants to record a major label." And he went through the same exact. Similar situation. And um, and he was all about it. I mean, he was all about, like, put together some songs and, and of course. And we way outlasted Tenth of Pole on that label.
1: Yeah. You
2: know, and, and I think we wrote a lot better records. Um, am I disappointed that Temple Pole had to disband the way it did? I mean, personally, yeah, because I think that if we would have continued to build off Rev, I think would have been pretty good. But uh, we never had that opportunity because they wanted—I don't want to say the fame and the fortune—but they wanted to. They wanted to take advantage of the popularity at the time, and like I said, kind of lost sight of of what the band really was and what it was supposed to be. And and you know, let's let's be let's be real. When we all start starting in the band, where, where, where do where do we start? We start in the garage, a bunch of buddies jamming, having fun, and it's not supposed to be taken that seriously. And once it does, that's when all the, all the, uh, that's when the shit just hits and everybody starts the arguments and, the, you know, just everybody, the different directions and everybody wants to, you know, uh, throw in their opinion at that point. And it just, it just, the fun's gone. And, um, so definitely made a conscious effort, uh, somewhere around 95 uh, when we started poly. It was like, this is the way it's going to be. And I had to be up front and honest because of the experience I just had with the guys that were joining and they were totally on board and Brett was totally on board and he knew we weren't a touring band. He knew about my baseball thing and he totally supported that. And he said, just put out good music and that's all he ever said. And I'm assuming the fact that he put out, you know, five records over however many years he must have thought, okay, it was good music.
0: Yeah, of course.
2: So, Uh so then that's what we did yeah but yeah, yeah to answer your question initially yes he was sympathetic I'm sure because like he was going through the same experience yeah did you ever
0: reconcile with the, the 10 foot pole guys uh,
2: well uh, the drummer Tony everybody in 10 foot pole eventually quit right. except for the singer guitar player okay. uh, the first one to leave was the bass player he left couldn't take it anymore and he, he's a, a guy that I would communicate with uh, the drummer Tony left 10 pole and immediately joined pulley <laughs> um, the other guitar player Steve I think he was the last to leave and I'm not exactly sure what he's doing now um, if I saw him we'd be you know we, I'm sure we'd, hello how you doing
1: Sure.
2: Um, I have not spoke to Dennis at all in the however long it's been 26 27 years I haven't spoke to him um, haven't reached out. So yeah, no, really there's been no reconciling, no.
1: Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, is there bitterness? There's no bitterness. There's just I mean, they made a decision back then and the way I look at it is you 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 wanted me out and okay, I, I left and went and did something else. I have no reason to go to go back and and, and revisit that.
0: Yeah. Well, also in 1996, you get every Southern California kid's dream, and you get to go play for the Dodgers. So, were,
2: were you a Dodgers fan growing up? Oh fuck yeah! Are you kidding me? I, I was a Dodgers fan my whole life, and 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 I um the the day that the White Sox said they didn't want to bring me back, uh, the first thing I did was said, well, what do I got to do to play for the Dodgers? And the Dodgers already had some left-handed pitchers. and... I actually turned down guaranteed major league offers with a couple of clubs to sign a minor league deal with Dodgers just to take a chance and I remember Tommy Resorty called me on a Sunday and said, We'll give you every opportunity to make this ball club and I remember sitting in my house just kinda of laughing, going, Well Tommy, if you just get me there, I said I'm not concerned about that. I'll make the team I'm not worried about it. <laughs> just just give me the opportunity to be a Dodger. Yeah. And um and that was how I felt, you know, physically, and I busted my ass.
0: And, and this is I your, had
2: something. to, I had something to prove, man. You yeah. know, and I showed up to spring training in '96, and I had three of the best years of my life. You know, '96, '97, '98. I'm 30 miles from the ballpark. Yeah, living at home, and like you said, I went to Dodger Stadium every day for three years, and it was awesome. So awesome.
0: Awesome. Yeah, yeah that's cool. Do you Do you have any yeah. uh, standout stories from your time with the Dodgers? Any what? Any, like, standout stories of your time? Um, Anything well, that's memorable?
2: That's all the, I mean, all the police stuff was going on at that time, so there was a lot of good times. I mean, I recorded three records. Uh, you know, we recorded steam. I, 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 we recorded a steam-driven engine. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 on my way to the stadium, I'd stop the studio, sing a song, go to the field, come back home, come back to the studio after the game, record another song that's even record the vocals and I did that for like a week straight and I recorded the first two records that way and then the third record we actually recorded after the season okay. so I was actually able to be a part of that on an everyday basis but um standout stories of being a dodger I mean fuck I'm i I mean all the people that I've watched my whole life i'm, I'm sitting I'm sitting on a team and Mike Sosa a coach. Reggie Smith's a coach. Bill yeah. Russell's a coach.
0: Yeah. I mean,
2: Tommy sort is the manager. You know, you know that that's enough right there for me. Yeah, totally. You do, know,
0: yeah. I, I I just don't know how everyone associates. Like, do you get to go to dinner with Tommy Lasorda and stuff? Is that, just...
2: No. Um, you know, it's baseball kind of one of those things where twenty five guys go in their own way after the game, really. You know? Yeah. I, but you know, when we're at the field, it was just there was a lot of. Uh, I definitely say the first couple of weeks I was just walking around. Wow. Look at this. This is awesome. You know, yeah. it, it, it was a little surreal for a while. Um, probably my best memory one day. I don't remember what year they held the all-star game in Cleveland, but they had the rock and roll hall of fame there. So the baseball guy for ESPN, Peter Gammons decides, you know, he's going to, he's going to, he knew me and he knew my whole musical thing. and um, it started by him being in an airport and seeing a maximum or being somewhere in a newsstand seeing a maximum rock and roll with me on the cover, throwing a baseball with it, saying 10 foot pole across my chest. So out of curiosity, he picks it up. And and that's kind of how our relationship developed. Mm -hmm. So anytime I'd ever see him around a baseball field and him being a big music guy, he would always bring it up to me. So one day on the field in Dodger stadium, we're we're taking batting practice. And, and, um, you know, as we're coming off the field, I see Peter kind of motioning over to me and, he's got Johnny Ramone and Eddie Vedder and he's going to do this piece for the all-star game. That's going to be held in Cleveland and it's tied into the hall of fame. It's like a musical theme thing. So he shows up out of, out of all 30 teams and out of all the baseball players out there, he comes to LA with these two guys to do an interview with me. <laughs> so that was pretty cool, man. It's like, we're all standing around home play. Peter's asking questions. And I'm fucking standing there with Johnny Ramone and Eddie, and they're huge baseball fans. Yeah, and um, and it was that was pretty cool. And the guys in the team couldn't—they didn't know who the fuck Johnny Ramone was, uh-huh. but Pearl Jam was huge at that time. So all the guys in the team were just freaking out. They couldn't believe it. you know Eddie better, you know, like they couldn't believe it. And, and uh, I think at that moment, there was a lot of guys in the team that probably realized like, fuck, dude. What's this band you're in? You know, like what? what what's going on? And and then uh, a steam-driven engine came out, and mm-hmm. of course everybody wanted coffee, and It was kind of cool, man. It was a uh, it was a cool moment, definitely.
0: Yeah, and that's a, that's a palatable album that I think that even if you're not into
2: punk rock, you can enjoy it. Yeah, it wasn't too harsh. Yeah, definitely wasn't like uh, you know the first seven inch we ever put out. <laughs> that's right. Um, you know?
0: yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit just about like. Um, transitioning out of baseball. Cause I, I always, I think it's so interesting with professional athletes that basically you do something your whole life and then it's kind of like over, but you're still, you're young in human terms, you know, but mm-hmm. you're old in sporting terms. So the last year you play professionally is 2001 or 2002.
2: I think it was 2002.
0: Yeah. You do the Cleveland Indians. Oh one. And then Calgary cannons. 2002? Yeah, I was with the Marlins, yeah. Okay. And,
2: yeah, I went to spring training with the Indians and and, and didn't make the team so that I came home for a couple weeks and then got picked up by the Marlins and went to their AAA team for a while and, you know, just, uh, I don't know, was kind of losing the enjoyment, I guess, and and uh, finished it out. And then, uh, 2003, have some offers to, to go to spring training and just wasn't feeling it. And, um, started talking to some people about, uh, was getting interest in, in, uh, in, in the other side of it, you know, like front office or coaching. And sure. so then 2004, I, st- I start with the, uh, with the Indians as like a special instructor or something and mm-hmm. kind of transition to that side of it. So, um, it, it really was never over for me.
0: Right. Cause you um, start being a pitching coach for them in 05.
2: Yeah. So, but I, I spent the whole year in 04 Kind of learning about the whole side of the game, and, you know, working with the front office people, and you know how they evaluate, and just a different side of it. Really, not a lot different than what you would do as a player. You know, evaluating a hitter, uh, or how you want to get him out, but just more like, what is this guy bringing to the table? What can we do to improve him? What's his strength? What's his weakness? Things like that that I probably wouldn't have paid attention to on a on a fellow player when I'm trying to diagnose, you know, dissect them, um, and. I didn't, I knew that, um, I wasn't going to be, you know, I wasn't going to go home and do nothing. I'm not play golf. Right. It's not going to be a, right. you know what I mean? It's like, I can only ride my mountain bike for so long during the day. And it's like, uh, what am I going to do? So I, I always, I had a always wanted to stay in baseball. So that was uh, so the transition really wasn't, there really wasn't a transition of not being in baseball. It was right. just more of like changing of a role.
0: Yeah, and you yeah. were you were really successful in doing that because you've you've done it ever since, correct?
2: I mean, I'd like to think successful. Yeah, I mean, I I, I understand people. I think my background certainly, you know, different, uh, you know, adversities I've had to overcome. Uh, you know, there's, I'll tell you what, man. You know, when you're you're living the life of a baseball player, and you're you know staying at a, a Hyatt Hotel and you know a Western Hotel, you know and and then, you know, a month later, you're sleeping on the floor in Germany. I think that those worldly experiences kind of help you relate to people. And, and um, you know, when I was a coach, you transitioned into that role. you now you're responsible for, you know, these, these, these pitchers on your team. And, and uh, it, I love being a player. Mm-hmm. There's nothing better than being a player. But I'll tell you what, when you're a coach and you're living through those, those 12 different pitchers on a team and you're in every single pitch of every game – and you're right there with them and you're there to like, you know, pat them on the back you're there to stick your foot up their ass. You're there to, you know, support and the the whole thing. It's a, it's a super gratifying, uh, feeling to, to, to be that, to be that guy. And, um, it's, it's pretty fulfilling, but I I definitely think that, uh, my personal experiences, you know, that I've had to go through, um, and and along with the other things that that I've been exposed to throughout the world, the different types of, uh, You know, climates of the world made it really easy for me to talk to a kid from Texas or California, or 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 some kid from the Dominican Republic. I relate to it all, and um, not every coach I ever had could do that. So, you know, I I did feel like that's like a special special strength of mine is is the ability to understand people because that's all it is. I mean, it's not about teaching a guy how to throw a slider. It's more about like keeping a guy on the tracks of this roller coaster that have these ups and downs over the course of an eight month season. Because the reality is, you're not going to be good the whole time, and there's going to be a lot of downtime. A lot of downtime where you're where you're not good and you're not successful. It's a game of failure, yeah. And um, you just kind of keep them. I always think of it as like like a bowling alley, you know. And I was my job was just to kind of keep them out of the gutter all the way down till they hit the pins, <laughs> and the season was over. And that's the way I see it.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Well, yeah. Scott, I really appreciate it. Um,
2: Absolutely, man.
0: This has been awesome, and uh, and Hope I didn't get
2: too long-winded. No,
0: no, no. That's that's kind of how I like to do the show is uh, to make it long-winded because uh, I'm it's, I'm not trying to do an entertaining podcast. I'm trying to do a informative podcast. So oh, cool, but hopefully
2: uh, it was informative.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I do want to just put the the exclamation point on it. That Polly has still been going the whole time and you guys never stopped putting out records. Um ever.
2: Yeah, I mean I got the 2000s. these songs on my phone right now that are getting ready to be put out at some point. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean yeah. in we, we you talked through the first 3 and then in 01 you do another record in 04 you do another record, 05, 08, 2011, 2016. So I mean, you you just found it's really admirable that you found A great life balance that you're able to to figure out how to do music for basically your whole life.
2: I think that's that's well. If you love something, it's not going to just go away. Right. Right. You know, and and I've been very fortunate to be paired with people that have that same like minded mentality towards it, and and that's why we all enjoy still doing what we're doing. It's being in the band is supposed to be having fun, and that's what we're doing.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks.
2: The music is agreed. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I, I I gotta ask. Uh, do you feel like you've been well represented on the podcast? Absolutely. Okay.
2: That was good, man. Great. Appreciate the opportunity to talk.
0: Awesome. Uh, thanks so much. We'll talk soon. All right, man. Thanks. All right. Bye bye.
2: Yeah.